Hello and welcome to this Friday, March 24th edition of Ag News Daily Podcast. My name is Delaney Howell and joining me is my co-host, Mike Pearson. Mike, how are you doing today? I am happy it is Friday, Delaney, although it's a little gray and rainy outside, but at least we're getting some moisture. I agree. And I am ready for the weekend as well. And just on a side note, I uh, noticed, uh, I think on Twitter this morning, tomorrow is Norman Borlaug's birthday. Oh, very cool. Well, a uh, a happy bo- a happy birthday for uh, for Norman, who's passed away, I believe, five or six years ago. But yes. uh, his work continues. It does. Very cool. Well, Delaney, as we uh, we've got a long podcast conversation this afternoon. We've got a very good podcast conversation. But uh, before we get to it, why don't you kick us off with some news? Sounds good. Yesterday we mentioned the health care bill that is being in, being voted on in Congress currently. And agriculture is providing or presenting a divided front for the bill. American Farm Bureau President Zippy Duvall is encouraging House members to pass the resolution where National Farmers Union President Roger Johnson is asking House members to vote down the bill. So we're seeing a divided front here from agriculture. You know, as we've been talking about the last couple of days, there are those that believe we should incentivize people to work for their health care and you know on the other side of that it's hard to write that big check for those that don't have off the farm benefits yeah that's the truth and you know it isn't it isn't terribly unusual to find nfu and uh, farm bureau on opposite sides of an issue but uh you know something like this that affects so many people in rural america uh yeah it's, it's interesting to see the divided perspective it is you know, speaking of perspectives, we've been talking quite a bit about the JBS, I, I won't say JBS, the Brazilian packing corruption scandal that's been going on down there. And uh, yesterday, or excuse me, today, the USDA made an announcement. The FSIS, the Food Safety and Inspection Service, announced additional steps to keep the food supply safe for American families. And they said that uh, none of the uh, allegedly tainted beef was ever imported into the U.S. So it sounds like we're still allowing Brazilian beef, but they have really stepped up. Um, oh, let me see. They've uh, they've stepped up, so they're doing additional pathogen testing on all shipments yes, of I raw and ready-to-eat beef uh, coming from Brazil. So I don't think we'll be seeing those ships headed to China, turned around, and, and you know headed back to our shores to unload that beef that, that they've got to get rid of. Yeah, and I haven't heard any more really about um, Senator Tester pushing that bill on the floor to ban or temporarily ban Brazilian beef. So I don't know what's going to come of that, but we'll keep you posted. All right. You got anything else? So I do have one more quick story before we jump into Darren's interview. On Twitter recently, there has been a lot of controversy right now regarding Cargill's non-GMO stance. And they released a statement either early this morning or late yesterday in the afternoon, saying that they know they've received inquiries regarding the non-GMO ingredients that they've been allowing and that they have been helping with or being a front for the non-GMO project, but they just wanted to let consumers and producers know that they still support GMO and their stance still remains that GMOs are scientifically proven to be safe, but to cater towards more consumers, they just wanted to allow non-GMO foods and products to be at the forefront of their operations. Hmm. Okay. 
Well, so, you know, it's, it's one of those, it's, it's that divergence between people with knowledge and the people with Facebook, you know, and exactly. And the yep. people with Facebook are, are making a ruckus. Anyway, I I do have one quick little thing. We did get on Friday the uh, Catalan feed report released. And just a quick rundown of the numbers. Total Catalan calves on feed for slaughter in the United States uh, were 10.8 million head, basically unchanged to a little higher from this time last year. Placements uh, totaled 1.69 million head, 1% below 2016. And marketings of fed cattle during February totaled 1.65 Four percent above 2016, so we're seeing those packers, you know, pull those marketings forward, and uh, that's nice. We're keeping feed yards current. And with that, we do talk a little bit about cattle with Darren Newsom in this next uh, market breakdown. We're going to learn a little bit about Darren, and we're going to discuss the markets and his perspective on analyzing them. Yeah, that all sounds great, Mike. Do you want to give our listeners the current market updates really quick before we jump into that interview? Uh, yes, I certainly do. Bear with me one second here while I pull them up on the computer. We had May corn closed down half a cent at 356 and a quarter. Deese corn also down a half at 379 and a half. In soybeans, May beans down 15 and a quarter at 975 and three quarters. Novi beans down 14 and a quarter at 977 even. In Chicago wheat, it was up three and three quarter cents at 424 and three quarters. That was the May contract. December up three cents at 473 and three quarters. In the livestock trade, April live cattle were up 32 and a half cents at 122.100. March feeder cattle down 320. Excuse me. March feeder cattle down 32 and a half at 133.37 and a half. April feeders up 22 and a half cents at 135.57 and a half. With that, Delaney, let's go to Darren Newsom and break down these numbers. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we are excited today. We are talking to a, uh, a longtime analyst on Market to Market, a longtime analyst for DTN, and his name is Darren Newsom. He is the Senior Markets Editor at DTN. Darren, is that correct? That is correct. I am the Senior Analyst, and long time just is another way of saying old. Uh, <laughs> so, yes, all of that is appropriate. It's an appropriate introduction. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Every now and again, I like to get something right. <laughs> Okay, Darren, so tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get your start in analyzing these markets? Oh, it goes a long way back. Um, probably the first of it was uh, was with the uh, the stock market meltdown in 1987. Uh, the co-op where I was working, I'd just gotten out of college uh, the previous May, and uh, the co-op that I worked at back home, uh, dumping trucks, running fertilizer, these sorts of things, uh, had a commodity office. And for whatever reason, I walked into that uh, commodity office uh, one day in October, and I said, I really didn't know why, but I thought the stock market was ready to go down. And so I set up an account um, and uh, bought some S&P puts and then watched as everything fell apart. Uh, And from that point on, and then, you know, during the summers, visiting with you know, as I was standing out dumping trucks, visiting with farmers, always wondering, you know, why the markets behave such and such. You know, you started just on the periphery wondering how all of this fit together. You know, and so taking that, going and getting a brokerage license, starting to do some some uh, analytical work on my own. Uh, since I had no customers, I wasn't making any trades and so on. Uh, as, as a young broker at that time, 
um, you know, one of the first studies that I started to do was the seasonality of things. Why did things behave a certain way uh, during certain types of the year? And, you know, so you start putting those pieces together. Then you look at price distribution, you know, when do things start, you know, tend to hit lows and highs, uh, and when do buying and when does buying and selling start coming in. So all of these pieces started to fit together, but it dates back to, what, black Black Friday, I think it was Black Friday, Black Monday, Black Monday, uh, in 1987. Yeah. Black Monday in 1987. So 1987. So that was really your first trade. That was that was my first trade. Was wow. uh, was S&P puts around the time of one of the most memorable stock market meltdowns of all time. Yeah. So that was a pretty good call, Darren. It was a good call on. And probably the last good call that I ever made. And, you know, so we're 30 years in now, and I'm waiting to do another one. Oh, you uh, peaked at the start. I peaked, you know. It's like a racehorse winning his first race and then becoming glue. It's just, you know, you keep hoping. The next, the next day, you never know. The next day might be good. So as far as college, did you go to school for marketing or any sort of economics, or did you really just train yourself? Trained myself. I I took two economics classes in uh, in college, and that was only because I had to. I started off in math, and about the second year um, at Fort Hayes State there in Kansas, Fort Hayes State University out in Northwest Kansas, I realized I was not smart enough to be a mathematician for the rest of my life. So I changed over to political science for the for the sole reason is I would be able to still get out in four in four years. I didn't want to go five. I didn't want to go four and a half. So uh, switching to something not overly useful in the real world, um, I was able to get out in four. But I had no economics training. Um, you know, I had a little bit of math, as my kids would later prove to me as they were doing math homework in high school and early college. I have no math abilities whatsoever uh, anymore. <laughs> uh, limited economics Um so that's why I look. That's why I look at charts. Uh, charts tell me everything that I need to know about what's going on. And that's one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about today, or we really wanted to talk to you about today, was you're one of the few analysts we have on Market to Market who is is truly a technical analyst. That you mentioned looking at the charts, watching the spreads. There's not a lot of folks who or at least that I'm aware of, that I talk to regularly, who just use the charts. I mean, as we prepare here, it's currently Friday, uh, March 24th. Next Friday, Darren, we get the yep. USDA quarterly grain yep. stocks and prospective plantings reports. Do you plan on just sleeping through that? Or do you already have a <laughs> map in mind of where the markets could go? Well, yeah, I mean, we all have a map. It's just whether or not we choose to look at it or not. And we can all see... The downtrends on weekly charts, the struggles on monthly charts. Um, we can see what the spreads are doing, how they're trending, and that spreads are just price differences between contracts, and that, that's that's all we need to know about what the market believes supply and demand to be. So it's all there. We all have those same maps. Now, what is different is that many want to be confused or pretend that what USDA sends out is fact rather than opinion. And that's all it is, is just one group's opinion. It's not fact. There's no way we can have facts of what acres are going to be. If we're in March, for heaven's sake, we don't know what acres are going to be. Perspective planning is one of the most useless numbers that comes out every year. But it gets more attention from everybody in the industry 
because they think it's fact. And it's one of the furthest things from it. But since it gets so much attention, people trade those numbers. How do you, how do you, I guess, reconcile that uh, the fact that even if it's all opinion, it, it is traded. I mean, we do see big moves oh. on report days. How do you There's reconcile no that, that with, uh, with looking at, at just technicals? Don't have to. Okay. It, does. it doesn't change the trends. The trends are in place. Gotcha. Trends are going to be in place next Friday at this time, too. Gotcha. Not change. Do they get um, amplified? You know, it's, yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, grabbing a, you know, an electric fence. It get you know, it'll amplify you for a little bit, <laughs> but it goes away. Uh, it, it'll, it'll pass. It, it, five minutes, maybe. Okay. A minute or two, ten seconds. And then, it's, and then it's washed away. We're back to where we were before. I mean, if we come out with corn, and, and I, I know we'll talk about this next week, but if we come out with corn at, 90, 91 million acres? So what? It's, it's, it's not even the first number. We've already seen USDA's uh, outlook summary in February. So what if it's 91, 92? The market's traded it. Yeah, we'll get an initial knee-jerk reaction, but it's not going to change anything. So what if soybeans come in at 88, 89 million acres? Why don't we wait and see? Why don't we wait and see how the weather plays out, how – what you know? What the, what the June numbers say, which are supposed to be looking back at, at what's actually occurred, or we all know that we're we're still going to see changes, possibly a million acre switch by the time we get to the January report, which is supposed to be the final, but it never really is because the numbers keep changing. But you know, so it, it, it's perspective for a reason. It, it could happen. It might happen. Doesn't necessarily mean it will happen. It just it might happen, and traders will trade. That's what they do. But it's not going to change the trends. And it's not going to make any major changes to the markets. No. I mean, it certainly can. Instead of being down $0.10, cents, we might be down $0.40. Cents. Um, but, you know, as far as, you know, if the trends are down, are we all of a sudden going to go up a dollar? Unlikely. Very unlikely that that sort of thing happens. All right, Darren. Well, now you've got us all uh, feeling pretty peppy here for a Friday. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's see if we can tease some good news out of you. And let's get the bad mm. news out of the way first. You've already alluded to this. Let's talk this corn market. I've got the December uh, new crop corn chart pulled up here. You know, we've got that double top right in there at, at what, mm -hmm. 403, 403 and a half or so. Mm -hmm. And then yep. since then, it's, it's trended down. Where do you see this downtrend ending? Okay. Um, I posted a tweet, I guess that's the word for it, here uh, yesterday, I believe it was on Thursday. Um, something I kind of like is if you, look at the, if you look at just the weekly close-only chart, which takes into account the old crop may at this point, uh, we've clearly broken a head and shoulder neckline. So, you know, you can just call it corn's broken neck, uh, you know, in parentheses line. Mm -hmm. uh, but if we just look at the December contract itself, uh, let me pull that chart up. Got it here. Got too many charts open. Uh, if we look at the D's contract itself, we posted, you know, another bearish signal this week with the contract establishing a bearish outside range. So in other words, we traded outside of last week's range. And last week, when we closed near the near the week's high, uh, which was 390, and we closed at 389 and three quarter. This week, we traded outside the high. We traded above the high, below the low, and then we closed almost on the low this week. Uh, closed at three, uh, 379 and a half versus the low of 79 that we saw here on Friday. So where are we headed? Well, on its weekly chart, 
Next supports around 376 and three quarter. That's not going to hold. Um, next after that, 370 and a quarter. That's probably not going to hold either. What we're likely to see is a test of the what was it? The August, July, August. Yeah, the August, late August, early September 2016 low of 358 and a half for the D17 crop. Most likely, we're going to go down there and 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 challenge that challenge that low if not go lower. I mean, seasonally, corn these corn tends to move down this time of year. Um, you know. Okay, so let's say what could save what's, if we're looking for a silver lining in this? What could save these corn? Eighty-nine million acres next week. People believing that number, even though there's no way it'll probably be true. <laughs> um, let's say USDA comes in at eighty-nine. That could bring enough buying back in to to prop up this this market short term, but it's not going to create a, a, an uptrend. Um, I think it wants to go down and test its contract low three fifty-eight and a half, and then most likely go lower. Oh, really? So do you expect a seasonal bounce here as we get into, what, uh, late May into June? No, because if, if I look at the Deese corn seasonals and the way they've changed uh, coming off of the last, this will be coming off, this is after the fourth year, so the three previous or four previous, um, uh, four previous uh, record low, or record crops that we've seen, I would say what we're in right now if we kind of go back to the discussion of you know, technical analysis, we're in a three-wave downtrend. First wave was from the high of 422 and three-quarter down to the low of 358 and a half. We bounced up to, as you said, up to that uh, double top near 404 on the weekly chart. So the third wave, you know, the the last wave of this downtrend should take the contract back below that 358 and a half. So what's that tell me? If I'm going to make a, a you know a guess like everyone else is about next week's report. The charts would seem to be indicating that we're going to see greater than a 90 million acre number come in. Okay. Maybe 91, Oof. maybe 92. Who knows? So, uh, but that's certainly what the Dees corn market looks like right now. There's room to the downside. We're going to at least test the contract low of 58 and a half, if not go lower. Now, soybeans have also been extremely low. They took a 15 cent change today, and we talked to Chip Flora the other day, and he indicated that corn and beans were both being affected by the large Brazilian crop, oh, I should say South American crop, but do you think that is the case? Do you think that that market is changing or that season down there is affecting both the corn and bean markets? I think that's part of it. Uh, I mean, it's certainly a part of it. There's a, you know, there's, there's a lot of grain worldwide right now, and, and the fact that you know, this is the time of year when we see U.S. shipments slow down because there's more uh, Brazilian crops available, particularly the soybeans. Uh, you know, attention, export attention starts to go south naturally, and so we see our ship weekly shipments slowing down, and that's exactly what we've got going on. So it does play a role. Uh, also, you know, we've got, we've got you know, fairly cumbersome numbers right now, uh, just domestically. If we just want to look at our own domestic situation. Uh, for whatever reason, USDA hasn't wanted to increase its export numbers, you know, for those who believe such things, uh, in its monthly supply and demand reports. They've left corn and soybean uh, export demand unchanged the last number of months. Um, I, mean, I guess what they actually did was lower uh, soybeans, even though we were running ahead of pace uh, to meet to the previous estimate. So, you know, it just seems like we may be slowing down demand, and 
you know, regardless of South American supplies, regardless of United States supplies, and all of these, all of this other noise that's out there, the one constant, the one thing that threatens all U.S. markets, not just soybeans, is demand. And I've talked about it all winter long, no matter where I've gone, uh, is demand. Certainly the Brazilian crops uh, play a huge role in that. Uh, but domestic policy is also a huge threat uh, to uh, to demand for U.S. for demand for the for U.S. supplies that continue to grow every year. Darren, now I'm, I just pulled up the weekly chart for November beans, and today's mm-hmm. close put us right in there to that October. Oh, I don't know if that is the fifth or sixth. That early October mm-hmm. low. Uh, yeah. Do we expect that to hold come Monday? Okay, nope. we we took out we took out support at 981, which you know we should. The next target's 950. That might hold. Um, you know, I don't have a lot of confidence in it. I, I want to see how the market acts when it gets down there. But I think you know the move below and then the close below support at 981. Uh, certainly brings into play now the 950. Uh, there's nothing indicating that this market's oversold at this point. So I would say you know we might see an up down Monday just because we were down Thursday and Friday so hard. Um, but you know again going back to Delaney's question, we have all of these supplies uh, becoming available in South America. You know we've got new crop. You know these these dreams of another record crop here in the United States. Uh, it's going to continue to weigh on the November soybean contract. Uh, so I, I really don't see any reason why we won't go down and test that next support level of 950 at this point. Do you see us, uh, do the charts, the technical indicators, give you any reason to think we're going to march right back down to that uh, channel we were in mid-2000, uh, let's see, early 2016, that 850 to 880 channel? The one thing about soybeans that corn really, I don't know, corn may not have, is is a more inelastic demand. Uh, you know, you got Chinese demand growing every year. Now, the thing that corn does have is more variable supplies. Where you know, we, last year we saw Brazil have a terrible couple crops, basically drain Argentina dry, trying to meet its own uh, domestic needs. That is Brazil. Uh, so the U.S. became the only game in town where, where the rest of the world could buy its corn. Um, soybeans have seem to have a more constant supply and demand situation. World demand continues to go up. World supplies continue to increase. It just so happens that this year world supplies are increasing more than uh, than world demand. So back to your technical question: Could we get back down into that channel between you know 850 and and 950? That's why the 950 number is intriguing to me. If we go back down and sit on the top of that, um, you know, then we're going to see what happens, because we've kind of broken ourselves into this 850, 8, you know, 850 to 950 range, or 840 to 950, whatever it is, and now 950 into 1060 uh, was kind of the high here over the over the last year, uh, taking out last summer's spike high. So we're developing these sideways patterns, and the thing with technicals is when you break out of that sideways pattern, whatever that previous range was, you either subtract it or add it to where you were before, uh, to your breakout point. So if we break below the 950, that certainly does open it up to going all the way back to 840. Okay. Looking out, looking out here, since you you know went to school for political science, hopefully you can 
tackle this question head on, but looking out here into the future with President Trump and the Trump administration pushing so much trade negotiations through right now with TPP dead and NAFTA being renegotiated, what do you see that doing long term for the grain markets? It's not good. And it's not so much trade negotiations as blowing up trade agreements. There's a big difference. Um, And it's not good. I mean, this is the threat right now. You know, the markets know it's all just talk. It's talk this. You know, it's it's a bunch of spoiled kids acting badly. But if all these words ever change into action from the U.S., China, Mexico, you know, Mexico is is, uh, searching for ways to only buy corn from – uh, from Argentina and Brazil, or Brazil and Argentina, uh, so much as to send their trade minister, their their, their secretary minister down to South America to you know work out some of these agreements, um, then those type of actions are going to have an effect on the market. Right now, markets don't really seem to care. I mean, let's let's see action, and let's see something besides just nonstop yammering and talk. Uh, let's see action once. You know, we throw an import tax on China for real, or we slap a 20% border tax on Mexico and they reciprocate. Uh, once we actually not negotiate trade but get into trade wars, then we'll see how much fun agriculture and, and ag markets have. All right, Darren, so far we haven't had a whole <laughs> lot of bright spots. Is there anything worth talking about in the wheat market, or is it just all terrible and we can move on? <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> Let's see. We've been shot at. Um, so we've been shot at, and we have a bunch of bullet holes in us. So let's just pack that bullet hole with a hand grenade. And now let's talk about wheat. <laughs> you know, I've got quite a different the analogy. idea. That, that, I think, does a pretty good job summing up where we're at in the wheat market. we got to have something good, Darren. It is Friday. Let's look at the live cattle markets. Heck of a rally over the past... Heck of a rally. What, four months now? We've been on the move. We've got trouble in Brazil. We've got strength here recently this week. Incredible strength. Can this keep running? As long as the cash market says it can. And the great thing about the cattle market is that the cash market took signals. And this is what, you know, as a technical analyst, I still enjoy this. It took bearish signals in the futures market and blew them up. And it reminded me of the old days, 15, 20, 25 years ago, when cattle markets didn't care. They couldn't care less about what charts were showing because they were driven by cash. And that's the way it was supposed to be. That's the, that's the sign of a healthy market. It, it's returning. The last few weeks, we have seen incredible numbers coming in the cash market. And as long as that can continue, I think the futures market is going to find renewed buying. It's going to keep finding support, trying to keep some sort of price relationship, even though that's basically gone out the window the last three or four years, but try to keep some price relationship with the cash market. So, yes, I mean, the bright spot in futures has certainly been, uh, or in the, in the ag commodities, has certainly been the live cattle. And to me, the, the real bright spot in that, the shining light in all of that, is that it's the cash market driving uh, driving uh, live cattle higher. You know, and, and where we sit today, I mean, based on some of the cash sales reports I heard, I know Tama Livestock sold a couple. Uh, I think the sale topped on Wednesday at 140 for uh, fat cattle. So, I mean, using that number, and even if we ratchet it down to 137, we're at a $17 basis to close the week. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. So that, you know, that's going to be sitting there for the futures traders to look at and they're going to try. I mean, one would think, in the, at least in the old days, again, I uh, go back to the word old, 
you would think that the traders would try to close that gap a little bit, that there would be reason for the futures market to close that gap a little bit. Markets don't necessarily make that much sense anymore. Okay. So maybe they don't. But it would certainly seem to indicate that we should see some follow-through buying next week. All right. Well, I'm glad we ended it there. That's that's a positive note. <laughs> Delaney, do you have any other questions for Darren? You know, I was talking to somebody earlier today, actually, talking about wheat markets, and they were saying that they'd read somewhere that the wildfires in Kansas weren't so much affecting the wheat markets, but actually the cattle markets. Right. I mean, Darren, is that what you've been seeing? Yeah, yeah. I still have a lot of contacts down there, um, and it didn't really affect the wheat market at all. Now, let's let's play the the, the apocalyptic scenario. If this had to, if this had occurred, say in mid May or late May, early June, when the wheat was ripe and you know just waiting to dry down for harvest, this would have been this would have been beyond horrible. Um, because right now, as it was, you know, it was the pastures burned, and, and, and the horrific scenes of the pastures and the cattle and all of this, and in Kansas and the Oklahoma and Texas panhandles. But had it been another 90 days down the road, or, or whatever, how many days that would be, uh, and the wheat had been ripe, uh, and, and you know, then you have a tinderbox of millions and millions of acres out there in that part of the state just ready to go up in flames. And it would have been so much worse, and the market's reaction would have probably been, I don't know, a three-cent rally uh, at most. I don't know. That's probably being too mean uh, to wheat. <laughs> uh, but it would take, and I mean no disrespect to the wheat farmers out in that area, but it would take something that horrific probably to get the market's attention. Just given the stockpiles and the sentiment is so bearish. Exactly. I mean, I mean, we've got we've got huge stockpiles. We don't care what USDA says about export demand. We're not going to get there. Uh, there's no way we're going to hit. Well, I shouldn't say that. There's always a chance. I mean, anything is possible. We could actually rally at some point. But I mean, we we could get to USDA's inflated numbers on 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 exports. But what if we don't? Uh, we have large stockpiles. I wrote a column last year saying U.S. didn't need to grow any more wheat, and we probably don't. We've got a strong dollar. It's weakened uh, here over the last couple of weeks, but it's still strong compared to some of our key competitors, the euro for you know for the European Union. Uh, the Russian ruble uh, is, has been weak. It's strengthened recently, but I mean, it's strengthened off its what ten-year, twenty-year lows. Uh, so, I mean, some of our key competitors, much weaker currencies, and their grain, albeit terrible when it comes to quality, is still more attractive on the world stage. I mean, we can't sell our higher-quality wheats, uh, you know, on a global stage right now. Number one, it's priced too high, and number two world just really isn't happy with the United States and for years they haven't you know some of the biggest buyers namely Egypt just haven't wanted to buy US wheat so we don't we don't sell anything and so it sits and our stockpiles get larger we reduce acres and the stockpiles get larger it takes some sort of cataclysmic event to start to reduce the stockpiles again that might be enough to get the markets uh, markets attention all right well, Darren, I do appreciate you taking the time to join us today. I mean, this is stuff that even if it's not always good to hear, especially as we get all the chatter into next week leading up to these reports, you know, sometimes it's nice to have a reality check. Well, yeah, you know, and I think that's that's the biggest thing. So many people are trying to uh, – I'll, I'll be careful with what I say there. 
they they try and make the situation sound nice and 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 good and they could say well you know USDA says this this and this doesn't make a bit of difference situation's bad it could get worse mm-hmm. before it gets better and there's absolutely nothing in the USDA reports that's going to change that what has to change is real supply and demand and actual market interest or a trader interest in these markets all right Delaney you got any other uh, follow-up thoughts for Darren I think that was it depressing as it was yeah well Darren <laughs> hey thanks so much again for taking the time to talk to us on a Friday afternoon and uh, we do hope that once you get out of the office and you quit looking at charts you have yourself a good weekend <laughs> I, I intend to do that huge thanks again to Darren Newsom you know uh, boy Hopefully we'll get him on again and we'll have uh, we'll have some better news. Yeah, definitely. That was that was a little hard to hear, but uh, you know, like you said, hopefully it'll be looking up. That's right, and the trend is the trend. You know, whatever it says, we've got to trade it. So with that, I want to encourage all of our listeners to log on to iTunes and rate and review us. Find us on Twitter at Ag News Daily or find Delaney at Delaney Howell 07. Thank you so much for listening and uh, have a great weekend.